Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Good morning. It's good to be here with you. If you have a Bible, open up with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, as we continue on in our series on Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, is where we will be. Um, We're in for a break this morning because we move out of some of the more depressing and pessimistic uh, and nihilistic themes in the book of Ecclesiastes and get something a little more comfortable and a little more easy perhaps to engage with. And it was a little disappointing for me because this week I found myself really getting into the despair of Ecclesiastes. I woke up on Wednesday morning, had this pressure in my left ear and had this pain and was dizzy standing up for more than a couple of minutes and uh, started to just cry out to the Lord, uh, looking forward to the day when all pollen will be thrown into the lake of fire and new creation will abound. There was a, uh, a mayor in South Carolina this week who woke up and found a, a film of sticky green yellow substance on her car and her husband's car, and she called the police and told the police that a hate crime had been committed against her. And the police showed up and said, this is just pollen on your cars. Uh, you're going to have to get used to this if you live in South Carolina. At least once a year you're going to wake up to this. Uh, my theory is, though, that she was right. It is a hate crime, just not by another person. It's a hate crime from nature itself, um, this onslaught that we get here uh, around the beginning of spring. Um, so, but we'll, we'll switch in Ecclesiastes. He will, he will move out of the despair and the philosophizing and the kind of observations that he makes of the different miseries and meaninglessness um, activities uh, that we have in our world. And he'll give us a little bit something different. We get a new tone. Um, we'll just read seven verses here this morning, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1 through 7. And you can tell there's a new tone um, because we'll get for the first time, right off the bat, you can see it, a command. We'll get a, a, a statement of exhortation. We'll be told to do something, an imperative. It might seem hard to believe, but this is the very first imperative we get in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've gone four full chapters and he's never once actually told us straight up to do anything. And maybe that's one of the reasons Ecclesiastes is perhaps a hard book to engage at times. We come to the Bible, and it's a little more easy to engage and to kind of take direction when the Scriptures tell us to do something. Uh, and we can kind of evaluate what they're saying and why it's saying that and, and whether we're in obedience to that or not. We get what looks to me almost like a little bit of a sermon here in Ecclesiastes 5. And so we'll read verse 1 through 7 and then... Uh, Look at it in more depth together. Pick it up in verse 1. It reads like this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity." 
but God is the one you must fear. Now we get the the topic of the sermon that the author Ecclesiastes gives us this morning right at the beginning. He, he's going to be talking about what to do when we draw near to the house of God. He's going to, in a sense, be giving us instructions for worship, instructions on how to approach God. He seems to have in mind, um, first and foremost, a temple setting. So a corporate setting of worship when the ancient Israelites would gather and they would go to the temple or later on go to a local synagogue. What should the posture be? What should the preparation be? What should be happening as one goes and one experiences time of worship? His words, though, I think can just as easily apply to our our private times of worship, of devotion. Um, When we just approach in general the throne of God, what do we do? What's the process here? And he'll list off a few simple yet profound things um, for us to observe as we draw near to the Lord. Um, Derek Kidner, uh, a biblical scholar, says this about this passage. He says, these words right here, this, this sermon, they're, they're for a well-meaning person who likes a good song and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens sometimes with half of an ear and never quite gets around to doing what he has volunteered for God. This is a word here in Ecclesiastes for people who go to church but sometimes find it hard to pay attention or for people who spend time in prayer but find that even their moments of prayer can be infused with distractions and confusion. It's for people who make plans with good intentions and then sometimes find that they follow or they lack the the follow-through for those plans. If any of those things is true of you or has ever been true of you, we, we have something to hear this morning from the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, guard your steps when you come near to the house of God. He says, examine what you're doing and why you're doing it. Now, we don't normally examine things until they start to break. And so when things are going well in our life, whatever it could be, a relationship, a job, just exercise or health, we don't think about it a whole lot. This is why you get sick. I wake up, my ear starts to hurt, and I think about all the days I wake up, my ears are perfect. I mean, not perfect. They're kind of small. They, they look like this, but they don't feel. They're not painful. There's not pressure. But then all of a sudden, when, it, when something starts to misfire, and you start to really start to analyze and think what went wrong, what can make this go better. It's true, I think, also of worship, of our spiritual lives. When things are going right, when we feel close to God, when we're experiencing the Spirit, we, we don't often examine these things. But all of us will at one point in our lives go through a time when things start to misfire. We'll be in a dry season. We'll be in a desert. There'll be situations in our life that will will kind of start to slow things down for us. We'll start to feel far and distant from God, or maybe we'll be going through something in our lives where we find ourselves naturally falling away from God. And then we might be tempted. We might need to sit back and go, well, what, whatever made it work? What was it about my relationship with God that made me feel close to God? Help me be transformed into Christ's image. Or, or maybe we've been coming to church for a, a stretch of a few weeks, and, and all of a sudden church seems to lose its value. And it once had value to us, and we once um, you know, really got something out of coming to worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and now we, we wonder what's, what's going wrong, what's, what's misfiring here. And so he says, examine this, guard your steps. Look at, look at the way you're walking, look at the things you're doing, because those are the things that are going to tell you um, why the results you're getting are happening. Those are the things that are going to predict for you what you should expect when you go near in the future. Notice that the author of Ecclesiastes, Coalette here, he, he assumes that we are drawing near to God. He's saying, 
This is what you should do when you draw near to God. Not if you draw near to God, but when you draw near to God. Now, some of us, myself included, at times when things start to misfire in our lives, have this tendency to adopt kind of a a hyper-Calvinism in terms of theology. We we tend to say, okay, God's sovereign and he's in charge, and so I'm going to wait on him to do something miraculous or dramatic in my life and turn things around. And so we start to actually fall away from God, if you will. We stop taking those daily steps towards God. And the text here is saying that not only is this wrong, but, but this is just not the correct posture, particularly when things are not going the way that we would like them to go, the way that we have come to expect them to go. This is the time to keep stepping close, to step close with more intentionality, to step close with more planning, with, with, with new and um, more full expectations. He gives us a few fairly simple, I think, instructions about approaching the house of God. He, he says, first, come and be ready to listen. He says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer a sacrifice of fools who, who don't really know what they're doing or why it is wrong. This is the first posture of, of a worshiper. Coming to a church service, perhaps going to the temple, coming in prayer before the Lord. He says, the right and first posture is to come with open ears to come ready to receive something from God. The assumption here and in the rest of Scripture is that there will be something to be heard. It's that God is a God who communicates. In Psalm 19, nature is communicating to us at all times, though we often don't hear it, and it has no voice. Scripture is communicating to us every time we open and read and study, every time we draw near to God in prayer. There's communication happening. There's something to receive. And so the question we ask ourselves when we draw near to God is, are we ready to receive something from the Lord? Are we ready to listen? Are our ears open? And and so if we're coming to a worship service, this might mean asking some of those questions. If we're going in prayer before the Lord on our own, I think these questions are equally valid. Am I open to getting something new, to being transformed in that process? For the same reasons it's hard sometimes to listen to other people, it's hard to listen to God. Life is distracting. It's easy for us to get distracted. It's hard for us sometimes to make out what is the voice of God versus maybe our own thoughts or the the thoughts of other people, parents or friends or the culture. Nicholas says, draw near and be ready to listen. Be ready to, to look around and see what God is saying and to receive it and let it transform you. you know, in a worship service, this can happen in, in lots of different ways. Through the, the reading of scripture, through songs that are sung, through um, conversations with our, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, through a sermon, through um, our, our moment coming to the table. In our own personal daily lives, this happens in a myriad of ways. And, and really, we only lose the ability to, to receive a message from God to the extent that we close off our, our attention from what's happening around us. Because it could be in a, a situation that happens with our family members, that God speaks to us. It could be driving and, and seeing the, the sky. It could be in listening to a certain song or seeing a work of art. It could be reading scripture on our own or coming to God in prayer. We come, he says, and, and we need to come um, with ears open to listen. We, we need to adopt the posture that Mary has in Luke 10, when she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, kind of waiting on every word that comes out of his mouth. This is the right way to draw near to the house of God. We, 
we need to have that attitude that Peter has in the Gospel of John when he tells Jesus that, that you, you have the words of life. To whom else would we go? Who, who else would we listen to? Draw near, he says, and listen. And then he says, also be careful with what you say. Don't be rash with your mouth or let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. He says, listen and then, and then watch what you say. Be careful about what you say. He first says, don't say a whole lot. Don't say more than is necessary. Don't speak too much when you approach God in prayer. Don't give yourself over to the temptation of over-speaking. He mentions the, the relationship between God and us and, and with creation as, as a, a reason for this kind of economy of words, for being short and sweet with our words. He says it's because of who God is and because of who we are that we should have the right posture when we come to speak to the Lord. If you think about it, when, if we come to God with a lot of our own words and our ideas and our plans— and we're less willing to listen to God's own words or his ideas and his plans, that is a bit arrogant on our part. We're small and limited and on earth, and God is infinite and in heaven, containing much more wisdom, possessing more knowledge than we have. This transcendence that is God and God's alone is is one of the reasons we should come and, and be careful with what we say when we we come to worship, we should examine, are we really meaning the things that we say, or, or are, we, are we feeling the things that we're singing? When we go in prayer, we should um, examine what we are presenting before God. One of the reasons I think that Scripture tells us, not just here, but in multiple places, to be careful and, and perhaps shorter with what we say to God is because if you start to overspeak, oftentimes there's a reason we're overspeaking. It's because perhaps, one, we don't know what to say, and so we just kind of throw out as much as possible and hope something sticks to the wall. Or it's because we know what to say or what we should say, but we don't want to quite say it. We're equivocating. With enough words and phrases, we're hoping to make the picture a little less clear than it could be. And this happens, I think, when we draw near to God. Ecclesiastes here, I think, is pointing at the, the truth that God's more interested in our honesty than our eloquence. He's more interested in our directness. Something interesting happens again when, when life starts to misfire for us and as we, we fall away from God instead of drawing near to him. And then often, sometimes we start to more and more pretend in front of God. As if God doesn't know that things aren't going quite the way we'd like them to go in our life. As if God doesn't know that we're frustrated or, anger, or angry or, or, or bitter about certain people or situations or even God himself. One of the things I love about the scriptures is that you have so many instances of God's people approaching God in, in pretty blunt, direct terms. And at times saying things that are, are wrong, perhaps offensive to God. You have King David saying, how long are you going to forget me? And God doesn't show up and say, what do you mean forget you? Okay, first of all, theology 101. I, I can't forget anything. I know everything. I'm always around. Second of all, do you remember the thing with Goliath? Okay, remember you becoming king. Like we really need to go through this history. You of all people, David, you're the one complaining that I'm not near and close and paying attention to you. No, God doesn't, doesn't rebuke him. David shows us the path forward to be honest with God. There's this rich tradition in the scriptures of lamentations where people almost make an art form out of um, being angry with God, being frustrated, seeking to communicate that most truthfully, the most direct of terms. 
And so we should not overspeak because we want to equivocate. We want to pretend in front of God. And we should also not overspeak for the same reason that we are to listen, because God is God and we are humans. When we come in prayer before the Lord, I think we can learn something about ourselves by looking at how much we are listening and how much we are speaking. I think you can kind of approach prayer in these two different avenues. One prayer is about coming to God with our own words and our own requests and petitions, and another coming to God in prayer is about listening to God, receiving something from God. And I think our default is that we come to God with words. We come to God with petitions and requests. And many people who have a hard time with prayer find that it's because that places so much pressure on them. What, what am I supposed to say? What are the right words? What am I, how am I supposed to fill this time? Instead, perhaps a better way or, or a nice corrective way to look at prayer is to look at prayer as a time of listening, as a time of sitting before God to receive his words to us. Theologically, we can imagine prayer in a similar way that we imagine worship. So when, when we come in worship, whether that's at a service or at our homes by ourselves or in the car driving down the road, we are not beginning to worship. We might be individually, but we're not starting some sort of worship service. Um, the scriptures imagine um, all of creation constantly worshiping God. In Revelation, all of God's people in the past dead now at his throne worshiping him. And, and when we start to sing, we're not beginning a service, but we're joining a service. We're adding our voice to the voices that are already going on. Prayer, I think, is a similar thing. In, in prayer, we don't begin a conversation with God. In prayer, we seek to attune ourselves more faithfully be in conversation with God. In prayer, as those united to Christ, through the Spirit, we come and sit beside Jesus and listen to the conversation between the Father and Him that's gone on for all of eternity. In prayer, we perhaps are required less to come up with and imagine words and rather to listen to what the Father says to the Son as He pours out His love and his will, and to simply say an amen or to echo what the Son prays back to the Father. Receiving that love, reciprocating it, agreeing with the direction God has for our lives. Jesus in the Gospels is a man of prayer, and he often, like this text, tells us to keep our prayer short. Don't get too fancy with it. Don't be too concerned with making it long and in public. But yet in private, we know Jesus often spent time away from the disciples and away from ministry to be in prayer. And, and it's, I think, safe to imagine that those times were frequent and at times very long. We have an example in the Gospel of John. Jesus prays with his inner disciples. And it's a long prayer. It's a complicated prayer. It's an intense prayer. There's three or four chapters in the Gospel of John. What happens, though, is sometimes I think we get the pattern of Jesus reversed. And so our, our prayers in public become the primary amount of time we spend in conversation with the Father, and our private prayers become the short prayers, the prayers that seem burdensome and heavy and like they have too much pressure and weight on them. We have no direction with them. I think this is perhaps a good kind of diagnostic test for our, our relationship with the Father. Wh- which side of prayer has more time behind it, has more weight behind it? Prayer in public, led by other people, perhaps leading it yourself? Or prayer in private, 
in the closet prayer that's just you and the Father, you and your family and the Father. James, in his letter, tells us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And he's talking about our relationships with one another, and that's a hard thing to do, and yet great advice and and spiritual direction. And and here, Colette, I think, is saying something similar, but in terms of our relationship to God. When it comes to God, we should be quick to listen and slow to speak, quick to receive and slow to stumble over ourselves. He continues on with his third and perhaps final instruction here in the text, gives us a practical reason why. We should be quick to listen and slow to speak. He talks about vows that we make to God. He says, when you make a vow to God, do it right away. Don't put it off because you put it off and it might not happen. And then you've created a sticky situation for yourself that you didn't have to create. He says, look, it'd be better if you didn't make a vow to God than that you did and then you weren't able to come through with it. Now, he's not talking about sinful vows. There, there are times where we're told certain vows are not appropriate. To make This seems to be more about a kind of a holy promise one makes to God, or even a, a sense of conviction. We're before God in prayer or worship, we, we become convicted of, of something to do in our lives, of something to offer in our lives. And yet, we don't get around to doing it, to fulfilling it. Don't get around to putting those things into action. It's easier to make these promises than to keep them, and, and we're prone to making these promises to God, particularly if we're in prayer and, and sometimes we, we play like a bargain game with God. If you'll do this, I promise that I'll do this. If I do this, will you just come through for me here and, and perform this for me? And Colette says, you, you have to be careful. In one sense, he's saying, don't play games with God when it comes to these types of convictions and these types of promises. Do it quickly, he says. I think one of the reasons for this instruction is just very practical. The longer between the time that you make a promise and the time that you keep that promise, the easier it is to forget about it or get distracted or for that to seem um, more difficult to accomplish. I've learned in my own life that it's not very safe for me to tell someone I will pray for them because it often doesn't happen. And, and I can't really even plan out the next few minutes of my life successfully all that well. And so it's much safer for me to say these things in the past tense. I prayed for you. This is the safest way for me to get around this kind of promise. How many times have we, have we been in prayer or in a service and thought, I, I, I'm, I need to do this. I need to serve in this way. I need to go speak to that person. I need to go offer forgiveness to that person. And yet, time passes, there's a delay, and it never ends up happening. Just know when you, when you feel that conviction, when you make that promise, when you have that vow in place, go and fulfill it. Go and do it. He talks about a messenger. This is interesting to me in in verse 6. He says, otherwise a messenger will come and you'll have to explain why it was a mistake. You'll have to play this excuse game. He's he's talking in, in, in monetary terms here about paying something that you vow to the Lord. And the primary context in his mind seems to be, in fact, a amount of money or, or crops, resources that you might have that you would vow to give to the Lord at the temple. And what seems perhaps unusual to us is that in the ancient world, if you had not paid up on your vow or on what you were required to give to God at the temple, a messenger for the temple would come around during the week and make a house call. Hey, things aren't quite adding up in our books. If you'd like, I can take that, that crop that you received and just take that to the temple right now. You can just slide the card right here. 
I'm wondering, as I was reading this week, if this is what we've been doing wrong at the church. We, we need to do these offering house calls. I mean, we might, who knows? We might have a sanctuary out there right now. I volunteered Zach. He's pushing back a little bit. It strikes us as interesting. You, you can see very clearly, I think, in, in that practice, how much more of a corporate thing their faith was. It's almost similar to the tax, right? It's something you owe one another as a community. There's this very strong sense of, of corporate nature of, of the people of God. It also blurs the line that we like to build between the private and public aspects of our faith. We get uncomfortable, perhaps rightly so at times, when, when people want to pry too much or, or we make ourselves too vulnerable to people in various positions of authority or, or power over us. Again, at times, because of legitimate abuse or hurt that's occurred. But in this ancient world, people, people knew what vows were made. They knew what was happening in someone's life. They knew what um, they had promised to give to the Lord. You see this even in the New Testament, in the way Paul addresses his congregations. You see this in the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, the book of Acts. There is this, this sacredness to one's debts before God, to one's promises to God. And coalesce says, be careful here. Don't just trip all over yourself. Know what you're saying. Say it with genuineness. And then be quick. Be sure to follow through on that. Live up to what you have said. And then he closes it in this last verse, in verse 7. He says a couple things about dreams in this passage. It can be hard to interpret, even in the original language, what exactly he's meaning here. The idea seems to be that with more work and busyness comes more dreams, and, and that can often lead to more foolishness and just more noise and confusion in the world. I don't know if any of you do this, but I laugh in my sleep. It's something I've discovered about myself in the last year or so. I think Lindsay often wakes up and has to pray. She's going to see the morning because I'm just creepily laughing in my sleep. Last night she woke me up and was like, will you stop laughing? And I could remember what I was laughing about. I had created a sitcom scene in my mind from a show we were watching. It was hilarious. With too many dreams comes too much new noise and confusion. He says, but instead be, be clear, be focused. He says, because otherwise what you're doing becomes vanity. It becomes havel. So he says, if you, if you don't do this right, if you don't approach the throne of God in the correct way, your relationship with God can end up going in that pile that he's already labeled meaningless. He's already said, look, if we, we just observe life and look around us, we can see so many things that end up at the very end of the day with giving us nothing more than we had beginning, nothing more to take with us after it's all done. It's just absurd and frustrating. It's just a way in which you can, you can approach God that kind of leaves you in that pile. But he says there's another way that leaves you in the, the more traditional approach, the more orthodox, we might say. In, in the, the, the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord is the, um, the beginning of all wisdom. This is the, the proper way to found and, and build a relationship with God. He says, if you do it correctly, you can be fearing God. You can have this reverence and awe for the Lord. You can find yourself truly in his presence in a meaningful way. I was reading uh, an, a theologian this week. He was talking about the idea of having fear in the presence of God. And, and he was saying that while for modern readers, this might strike us as odd or something not to be desired, he, he said, um, for an ancient community, and this makes sense if you think about it, to feel fear is indeed actually like a confirmation that you're in the presence of the Lord. 
Like, it, yeah, it's maybe not the best thing that you ever would want to feel just on your own if you're just choosing things. But if that alerts you to the presence that you really are experiencing God, if God is this big and this mighty and, and you do need to take your relationship with God seriously, then if you feel some of that, this is a good indication that you're not making things up. You're not playing games within your own mind. To feel that, that heartbeat, to feel that pulse, is to know that you're actually here in the presence. There's a, a, a big, wild, powerful animal that you encounter in the wild, on the safari, what have you. It's that quickened heartbeat. It's that perspiration. That's what alerts you that you're really in the presence of this. This is really happening right here and right now. If you're just thinking about it, reading it in a book, these things don't always occur. It's, it's the, the fear that we feel in the presence of God that rightfully alerts us to the fact that we are engaging, encountering with the one who created the entire world. Listen, he says. Watch what you say. And then be quick to do what you have said you would do in the sight of God and of others. And these are fairly simple instructions. One of the things I've found as I have struggled with depression and anxiety on and off is that with mental health, and it's not always the case, but a lot of times the, the way to pursue more mental health is through some fairly simple steps. Things that you know, things that most people know. Eat better. Get a good night's sleep. Exercise. Get out of bed. And I've, I've been in that spot where I don't get out of bed for a couple of weeks and I feel miserable and then I'm in front of a doctor and she's like, here's my first piece of advice. Why don't you just try getting out of bed in the morning? And I come back a week later and she's like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm feeling a lot better. Who'd have thought? Getting out of bed and getting dressed, I'm interacting with more people, getting more things done. I'm feeling less anxiety and, and, and feeling less depressed about things. And it's this very simple and powerful advice. But yet, at times, things can happen that make it feel overwhelming, impossible to accomplish. Or things can happen in our lives where we don't think of this. We can go two years and never think, okay, maybe if I got out and exercised some more, that would help. Even though we know this, right? Even though when we're reminded of it, we're like, how simple, but how true, how effective. Often I think this is true of our relationships with God. Not that there's not complexity and nuance, but yet it's a lot of very simple things that many of us know and, and perhaps have known since we were children. It's those things that if we do faithfully, if we take those steps every day, that will result in an increased relationship, more transformation in our life. And the blessing for us, just like those who struggle with mental health, is that we've been given gifts to, to be able to pursue this. We've been given community. We don't have to do this alone. We don't have to listen alone. There are others to listen with us and listen for us at times, to remind us and teach us and encourage us to listen. We don't have to be careful what we say. We sort of speak alone. We have others to do that with us and for us. We don't have to be alone in our vows before God and our convictions. We have those who can lift us up and help us. We, we've been given community and we've been given time. We've been given patience. These, these aren't things that have to happen overnight. This, these are things we're allowed to grow in. These are the things we're allowed to experiment with, try, and then fail, and then get back up. And over time, through a, a very long, 
path of simple yet profound steps of obedience, we find ourselves drawing near to the house of God and experiencing something powerful and real. We find ourselves coming near to the house of God and it's not something that is meaningless to us. It's not something that just contributes to the vanity around us. It's something that channels an experience of God, something that propels us forward through a real encounter of the living creator. This morning as we come to the table, perhaps we reflect on the simple truths that we've been given in Scripture. Perhaps we commit ourselves to coming with ears open and tongues sharpened, disciplined, and the strength through the Spirit to follow through on the convictions that God has placed in our hearts and in our minds.